Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite a guest to bring in any poem they'd like to talk about for any reason. We'll talk about what excites us, what engages us, maybe what frustrates us, and we'll see where the poem and the conversation turn. Afterward, we'll have a little bit of silliness because I cannot help myself. I'm grateful today to have Dr. Athena Kirk. Athena is an associate professor in the Department of Classics here at Cornell. Her research focuses on Greek literature and epigraphy, the study of ancient inscriptions, and she's the author of the book Ancient Greek Lists, Catalog and Inventory Across Genre. She is also the official next-door office neighbor of the show and is very tolerant of my occasional interruptions. Athena, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here Yeah, um, in a different space uh, than we're usually in. I know, yeah. We're familiar, but... Oddly strange. It's a big campus. I don't think people know this about Cornell until they actually step foot that it's huge. I think every year I learn, I hear the name of a building I've never heard of before. Absolutely. And they also change the names of places, roads. So you brought in Thomas Hardy's Shut Out That Moon. And I just, for a little background, you first suggested Louise Gluck's poem, Afternoons and Early Evenings, which we'll share a little later. But before we get to the Hardy poem, I have to ask, is there a particular reason, because you're a classicist, that you didn't choose a poem from antiquity? (laughs) Well, there was no reason that I didn't do that, you know, and um, I didn't do it to uh, shut out antiquity, so to speak. Um, but I took this as an opportunity, I think, to talk about poetry that I don't always get to talk about in my work, in the classroom. I love Greek poetry. I love some Roman poetry. And I, I teach a lot of it, and that's kind of that's where my life's work tends to lie. But I love other poetry, too, and so it's a real treat to get a chance to talk about something different at the risk of coming on as not at all an expert right. in this period, in this in this poet. That's kind of why I do the show, so I can talk about poems I haven't thought about, because usually that's what people bring in. I have a quick question, though. Is there like a Greek versus Roman, Coke versus Pepsi <laughs> split about poetry? You know, I think there's <laughs> sort of an artificial one in the discipline, right? So Greek and Latin as languages tend to be lumped together and studied together because of the accident of history, right? That there's so much uh, shared history between the cultures that spoke them. And so people tend to go down one path or another, right? Are you a Hellenist or a Romanist? But really, you know, all the poetry or much of the poetry is great. We all have our favorites. I'm partial to Greek poetry, but yeah. So Coke Pepsi might be a little bit of a strong binary there, but (laughs) certainly on, you know, academic paths, disciplinary paths, people tend to do one or the other. Okay. I was dumbing it down for myself, for simplicity's sake. That's the Coke Pepsi. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Whenever you're ready, go ahead and read Shut Out That Moon. Okay. Shut Out That Moon. Close up the casement, draw the blind, shut out that stealing moon. She wears too much the guise she wore before our lutes were strewn with years deep dust, and names we read on a white stone were hewn. Step not out on the dew-dashed lawn to view the lady's chair, immense Orion's glittering form, the less and greater bear. Stay in, to such sights we were drawn when faded ones were fair. Brush not the bough for midnight scents that come forth lingeringly, and wake the same sweet sentiments they breathe to you and me when living seemed a laugh, and love all it was said to be. Within the common lamplit room, prison my eyes and thought. Let dingy details crudely loom, mechanic speech be wrought. Too fragrant was life's early bloom, too tart the fruit it brought. Oh, this is fantastic. I did not know this poem, as I mentioned to you, prior to this. In an email, you said that 
this poem is so good that you feel more joyful than depressed every time you think about it. I'm curious to hear more about that. Yeah, maybe that says a lot more about me than it does about the poem. <laughs> it is. It's a it's a dark poem, right? It's a cynical poem, and maybe that's not to be unexpected from Thomas Hardy. Mm-hmm. And yet there's something about it that I have to say I find so satisfying. He has this way of describing, you know, this combination of regret at, you know, bitterness that the present isn't all that you wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And whatever was great about the past somehow makes that even worse, which is not something that we always think about, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, we have this word nostalgia, right? And, the, and there's a certain amount of the literal sense of nostalgia here, which is this pain, this longing at the at the journey mm-hmm. of going back. But that pain is so big for the voice here, whoever it is, uh, yeah. whether we associate it with Thomas Hardy or not. So that's one thing about it, right? It's just so strong. And I think I love the forcefulness, yeah. right, of of this frustration. But beyond that, I mean, the images are just so great and so vivid, right? This idea that you're you're inside at night and you want to shut off everything and not go outside, right? And not see mm-hmm. any of this stuff. And there's a lot going on here with nature. I don't know. There's a lot here I think that I could say, but I I think I first read this poem in my early 20s, maybe mid-20s, I have this memory of sitting outside and just picking up a copy of (laughs) Thomas Hardy poems that was around and reading through them and really getting stuck and stopped at this one. So maybe joy was too much much to say about it, but there is something really satisfying, I think, about the rhythm, about the images. It has a almost ballad sort of rhythm, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this tetrameter-trimeter alternation. I love the the speed of the beginning, right? So even though we're dealing with tetrameters, you kind of expect it to go like the last stanza within the common lamplit room, but but instead it's close up the casement, Mm -hmm. right? Draw the blind, step not out on the do, brush not the bow. So we get a lot of stress on that first syllable. And I think it it really wakes you up, right? Um, And these imperatives, you know, of course, that's where we would get things stressed, but there's something arresting about it and as I say to me really satisfying about that kind of that kind of insistence. I love the what you said about the stanzas having this kind of ballad rhythm because it's it's there's an anger to it and yet there's also something quite lyrical about it. And which is funny given how sort of bitter it is, even from the title. I this is I think my new favorite title, Shut Out That Moon. Yeah. Not yeah. not Shut Out the Moon, Shut Out That Moon. Like yeah. it's Almost like a 50s husband, angry yes. 50s husband coming out. <laughs> right. And, you know, there's so much, there are these, you know, forceful phrases, close up the casement, draw the blind, shut out that stealing moon. And that's our way into the poem with all these directions. Don't do this. Don't do that. Step yeah. not forth. Brush not the bow. And it has that harshness, which which is such a great contrast with the lyrical rhythm. And it's so imagistic. We get sight, smell, taste, sound. Mm-hmm. In this poem, which I, I tend to think of not to think of nineteenth-century British poetry getting that sensory, mm-hmm. and so I really like mm-hmm. that it's a poem that really sort of embodies the moment of the speaker, yeah, uh, really fully. Yeah, very much, and I love this thing that you say about the lyricism here because the voice is sort of interesting. Here we have these imperatives, right, which 
imply a first person and a second person interlocutor, but where are they? Right? Yeah. Who are these people? Um, and then we have a she, which is the moon, mm-hmm. right? Um, again, not uncommon to to call the moon she, and yet we have this third character here, right, from the beginning. And when we get to this we, right, the before our lutes were strewn, well, that hour, that we is mm-hmm. someone old, I think, someone from before, right? And the names we read now, I think we're in the present, right? I guess you could say names we read, but I'm pretty sure it's names we read, right? On a white stone, we're hewn. And that really kind of stops us in this present, right? It's names we read. These are the deceased, right? The mm-hmm. gone. It almost sounds like a war poem. Um, yeah. And yet this is 1904, right? You know, we're you read this and you think maybe this is some kind of World War One poem, but we're not there yet. And indeed, I think Hardy's wife dies at some point, like 1912 or something. Mm-hmm. So we're also not there yet, right? He writes a lot about that experience. Yeah. I think maybe they're estranged and that kind of gets connected, right? That personal history gets connected here. But anyway, we seem to be dealing with a couple of people who have some sort of bond. There's this third element of the moon and then this this we really has to do with things that happened before, right? To such sites we were drawn when faded ones were fair. Yeah. Um, again, just like that gravestone, right? This mm. this thing that used to be alive and is now no longer. The same sweet sentiments now. We're back to the the smells, right? They yeah. breathed to you and me. So I I think there is something about that voice that is lyrical, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of relationship between a speaker and somebody he seems to be yelling at. Yes. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's the third person reads as passive aggressive the, when it's the moon. She wears too much the guise she wore before our lutes were strewn. Yes. They, this, this is something that Shakespeare does in all kinds of sonnets where it's this sort of right talking about a thing outside when it's really just talking about the person he's directly angry with. That's right. Yes. There's this kind of <laughs> displacement there. Exactly. I mean, and the other thing you say about the sensory part and then also these images, there's a relationship with nature here that is really intense, right? Yeah. I mean, the moon is so important, as you just said. It's it's this kind of passive-aggressive speaking through <laughs> this, this natural character. We get the sky and the constellations and whatever plant life I think we're meant to imagine this bow is, right? Some fragrant flower, maybe. And yet it's a really fraught, unhappy relationship with nature, right? So if this person <laughs> is an inheritor of romantic poetry, right, we've gone in a really different direction. Yeah. Uh, this is someone who who just can't see this stuff anymore, can't smell this stuff anymore, yeah. right? can't hear certain parts of it anymore. And that frustration, it's so funny. When I read, when I read your note in the email about feeling more satisfied every time you read it, I actually had that response with my first read of the poem successively through the poem. Mm-hmm. Like, because it's strange that he is both condemning the idea of don't pay attention to these things and yet being lyrical about them. Mm-hmm. Step not forth on the do-dashed lawn. Yes. <laughs> no, he's he's so invested in these memories, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it's a poem that it it's self-negating because he's very clearly still able and and actually does want to evoke these things. He just wants to evoke them in in terms of the same sweet sentiments. Mm-hmm. And we do get that you and me. I think that's the first time in the third stanza, mm-hmm. the same sweet sentiments they breathe to you and me. And then the voice becomes wistful. I love that. When living seemed to laugh and love all it was said to be. There's oh, that pause. 
I often end up telling my students that rants are fun to perform and fun at times to watch, but tend to be really tedious to read. Mm -hmm. And there is a way in which even with the lyricism, it starts as a kind of rant, and then that third stanza changes it. You feel like you feel or hear echoes in it already. To such sights we were drawn when faded ones were fair. And then the language becomes like it, it's strewn throughout that come forth lingeringly. Yes. Orion's glittering form. He can't help himself. Yes. I, I feel it's just so powerful. I think that's exactly right. Those things that he or, you know, whoever the speaker is wants to shut out. And when we get to the imperatives right again, it seems that the the speaker is really telling themselves to mm -hmm. shut out these things, maybe rather than this other person. But yeah, we really slow down at that third stanza. Brush not the bow for midnight scents <laughs> that come forth lingeringly. The rhythm just slows a little. We don't have as many short things to say at once as quickly. Right. They breathe to you and me. And the, when living seemed a laugh, theoretically it was. It's just that no, now no longer he can only see the past uh, uh, through this lens of naivete. Or I was so naive to believe that this thing was any would last, which is great. One of the things I love in the poem is that the moon is out stealing. And then in the second stanza, mentioning the the ladies' chair, Orion, the lesson greater bear, mm -hmm. constellations feel a lot more fixed and permanent. Mm. And so there's this this kind of ongoing tension, I feel like, between what he wants to be lasting and what is, in fact, passing. That's a great point, yeah, because stealing has this double entendre in a way, that stealing moon that is stealing across the sky, moving, but also that somehow is stolen something from us or from me. But you're right about those constellations. Yeah, I guess they are fixed, and some of them at least you can see all the time in certain parts of the world at least, yeah, that's like, right. like England, um, <laughs> like northern parts of the world. I think Orion, I guess, moves around. But, you know, the lady's chair is Cassiopeia. Uh, we usually call it Cassiopeia. What's interesting about that one, and I don't know how much he intends this, is Cassiopeia is this lady who has been imprisoned in a chair. <laughs> That's what we're supposed to imagine. Oh, the, wow. <laughs> uh, constellation is, yeah, she, she, was this, she was the mother of Andromeda. She boasted about the beauty of her children. She got punished. Anyway, it's a long and complicated story, but Andromeda it gets chained to a rock, and she's basically sacrificed until she gets saved later on in some versions of the myth. But Cassiopeia, the mother, is chained to this chair. And that's what mm -hmm. they see in that constellation. Orion, too, meets, at least in some versions of the myth, he's he's this great hunter, and that's what we see in the constellation, but mm -hmm. also killed by the goddess Artemis. These are constellations that are familiar and that are very fixed, but also have these sort of dark mythological associations with them. That's um, right. And the the last stanza with the line, prison my eyes and thought, takes on a different resonance, knowing the Cassiopeia story. Yeah, yeah. And as I say, it's hard to know how much we're supposed to make of that connection, but we're so enclosed in this last stanza, all of that outside nature until we get to the very end, this last kind of one-two punch mm -hmm. <laughs> at, the, at the end of the poem, too fragrant was life's early bloom, too tart the fruit it brought. We're back to this sensory experience. But before that, within the common lamplit room prison, my eyes and thought, this line you just read, the dingy details, we it feels so 
stuck, right? Mm -hmm. You feel so hemmed in uh, by this room, and yet this seems to be better than whatever the alternative would be, right? The alternative (laughs) would be continuing to be able to see these things that are not as good as they once were or not as good as you hoped they would be. And I also love that we get back to the couple here, if it's about a couple, rather than just the context, right? Rather than just the space that they're in, mechanic speech be wrought. It's this passive way of talking about this very awkward kind of discourse that's happening. Well, it's funny. The fourth stanza is in many ways different from all the stanzas that precede it. One of the things I found myself a little tripped up by the first time I was reading was tracking the rhyme scheme, yes, which is so irregular. And then by the last stanza, it's just alternating rhymes. That's right. There are lines that have no rhymes in the first, second, and third stanza and is the only stanza with no cesura. It's all end-stopped. And so it has that rhythm that's more lulling where he has these great enjambments yes. earlier on yes. it's within the common lamplit room Very prison dynamic. my eyes and thought mm-hmm. let dingy details crudely loom I do feel like the sound's a little richer here in the language than mm-hmm. in other places like he does have that kind of alliteration of like double word pairs in different mm-hmm. places but too fragrant was life's early bloom too tart the fruit it brought that's just a lovely movement so good. of vowels and the two picking up bloom and the so two tart the fruit it brought. It's That's just, right, the fragrant and the fruit. Yes, you're right. I'm, I mean, if this stanza is meant to evoke mechanic speech, he does it, and yet there's so many things that are not mechanic about <laughs> it. It's the best mechanic speech I've ever heard. Yeah, right? exactly. But he, the thing is, what he he knows, I think, that what he's wishing for is not possible. The, it's a it's a fruitless wish. You, mm-hmm. He's not going to be able to prison his thoughts. What's, I think, fascinating about it is I read some sort of awareness that that is part of the problem, mm-hmm. that it's it's not changing things. It is it is his own change mm-hmm. that that is so frustrating. Yeah, that might be. And it gets so over the top by the end. Too fragrant was life's early bloom, too tart the fruit about that. You wonder if he's... Maybe, I hope maybe he's laughing at himself a little bit, (laughs) that there's a certain amount of turning the mirror back a little bit and -hmm. and thinking that even all these sentiments might be a little much. (laughs) There's some humor to be found or even, you know, something to be found in the point that we've gotten to. I don't know. Well, it is is so over the top. Crudely lewd. Vowels are all so drawn out and it's, it's... it's almost it's a kind of moaning that that goes on, and it, I can imagine Hardy having a good time writing this. It, yeah, it, I think I hope I hope he did. Yeah. I think I can too. <laughs> you know, one of not the first time I read this poem, but subsequently I heard a recording of it. There's a recording of Richard Burton, the actor, oh, wow. reading I think some of his favorite Hardy poems, and this is one of. And you can just imagine Richard Burton at the end here, too fragrant was like right. <laughs> Really lays it on. I'm going to have to try and find that audio and snip some of it for the episode. That's great. Yeah, definitely. Within the common lamp-lit room, prison my eyes and thought, let dingy details crudely loom, mechanic speech be wrought. Too fragrant was life's early bloom, too tart the fruit it brought. Other things that you wanted to say about the poem? 
you know, you asked me before why I didn't choose an ancient poem. And I said, well, it was kind of opportunity to choose something <laughs> else. But there are always ancient things to be found in non-ancient poems. So as we said, one of them is the constellations that have mythological origins. And indeed, some of our first mentions of Orion, for example, in Greek poetry are as a constellation mm -hmm. uh, rather than just the myth of the person, which is kind of interesting. Oh, so wow. in a way, these are figures that have always huh. been constellations <laughs> in addition to being mythological yeah. figures with stories of their own. But the other one that I want to come back to is this, well, two things in the first stanza, the lutes for one thing, which is reminiscent of old instruments, even though the lute, I think we associate more with kind of medieval music. Mm -hmm. But these names we read on a white stone were hewn really is reminiscent of at least a 19th century idea of Mediterranean, you know, Greek and Roman antiquity. Mm -hmm. The white stone reminds us of marble, right? It doesn't say a gray stone. Right. It says a white stone. <laughs> um, maybe this is just because I tend to work on inscriptions and I work on texts that were hewn on stones. It, right. It's a nice moment of the poem for me. This this relationship with a person with a memory as being a relationship with a piece of I don't know if it's marble in this case or granite or something is is one that I think about a lot. What what is people's what was people's relationship in antiquity to this stuff that they largely read on this very hard surface that somebody had to chisel in and really think about putting in there. Right. I think when Hardy uses it here, it's about the distance and the hardness that that creates. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not a person we're talking to. This is just a name that has been cut in to something. And that's yeah. that's a really sad thing. But it opens up a sort of whole window into the past for me. That's great. I love that. Yeah. That's fantastic. I'm so glad you brought this poem in. Oh, well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Before we get to the silliness, uh, it might be a good time to read the Louise Gluck poem, if you don't mind. Sure. Afternoons and early evenings, the beautiful golden days when you were soon to be dying but could still enter into random conversations with strangers, random but also deliberate, so impressions of the world were still forming and changing you, and the city was at its most radiant, uncrowded in summer, though by then everything was happening more slowly. Boutiques, restaurants, a little wine shop with a striped awning. Once, a cat was sleeping in the doorway. It was cool there in the shadows, and I thought I would like to sleep like that again, to have in my mind not one thought." And later, we would eat polpo and saganaki, the waiter cutting leaves of oregano into a saucer of oil. What was it, six o'clock? So when we left, it was still light, and everything could be seen for what it was. And then you got into the car. Where did you go next after those days, where although you could not speak, you were not lost? Wow. I was actually having coffee with Roger Gilbert earlier today, and he said that he sometimes has, a, has trouble teaching Louise Gluck because she reads as so straightforward. Yes. And that that's something I love about her poems is that there is that I talked about this already on another episode. So <laughs> but the compression and the and the feeling that it is boiled down to, to as little as it can be to still be as evocative as possible. Yeah, I think that's true. There there are these little sort of chosen images, uh, almost I don't know, pieces of snapshots uh, mm -hmm. cut out of a portrait. It's interesting to juxtapose this poem with the other one, which wasn't what I had in mind particularly. But in this collection, which is which is the the last one that she published, 2021, 
she seems to be reflecting a lot on end of life, on relationships, mm-hmm. on what it's like to reach this point where a lot of people are gone and a lot of memories are only yours or memories uh, in some of those poems that are shared with a sister that mm-hmm. we read about. This one, one of the reasons I, I like it is that it does have this sort of Mediterranean feel to it, as I had said. <laughs> so in these tiny moments, right, these compressed moments, the ones that stand out to me as someone who works on Greece are once a cat was sleeping in the doorway. That's the most Athenian scene ever. Um, it was cool there in the shadows, the implication that elsewhere it's hot. And then she talks about what they're eating, polpo and saganaki. So saganaki, a, a fried cheese usually. Polpo sounds like octopus and a waiter cutting leaves of oregano into a saucer of oil. Uh, again, we seem to be in the Mediterranean or maybe at least being transported there if they're right. in a restaurant. And so this seems maybe to be programmatic of the collection, winter recipes from the collective. There's a sensory element to the food that's being eaten. But for me, this just is evocative of you know, these, well, lazy afternoons and early evenings in this other place, in a place where maybe the pace is a little bit slower. She begins the poem with the beautiful golden days when you were soon to be dying. And again, that really stops us, mm-hmm. right? Um, oh, beautiful golden days when this when this really dark and terrible thing is about to be happening. But to remember that and think about that and, and evoke that with such a sense of sensory pleasure mm-hmm. is so different from what we see in Hardy. I mean, as far as I can understand in Hardy, no one is actually dying. <laughs> no, he just feels like it. Yes, he's, he's exactly. you know, he's putting on his black eyeliner and <laughs> exactly. And, and so, and you know, this, this poem really celebrates the outside surroundings. So mm-hmm. even though it's not at night, the city was at its most radiant. These, the lights of outdoors are something to celebrate and not something to shut out, right? Something to be very much a part of. And this idea that it's six o'clock, I love the specificity of that moment. We we have midnight, the evocation of midnight in the Hardy poem, right. which is also a problematic time. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we can all be there with this poem in a moment, thinking about what it's like at six o'clock, this, this moment in either a hot climate or the summer right at the cusp of afternoon and early evening mm-hmm. and how special it is to linger in that time, especially if somebody doesn't have so much time left. You inadvertently brought in two poems about grief, but in very different modes. Yeah. Again, as I say, maybe that says something more about me (laughs) than about these poems. But there's something about the end of this one. Where did you go next after those days where although you could not speak, you were not lost? Sort of like the Hardy poem, this brings us to such a, a sad place. Yeah. And yet I really do feel a warmth and uplifting kind mm-hmm. of sense when, when I get to those lines. There's so much care in them. The details, have, the specificity of all the details have and the way that she is remembering them and rendering them shows her care for those moments and this person. Mm-hmm. And so... Then that question, the one of the implications is, you know, I think, do you do you get to experience things like this? Like, what is your experience? And not being able to share that. There was something that I was thinking about after the six o'clock line. So when we left, it was still light, and everything could be seen for what it was. I don't know 
how we're supposed to feel about that. <laughs> is that a good thing or not, right? Is that everything could be seen for what it was? We sort of knew this was the end, or is it yeah. everything could be seen for what it was? We realize that we've come to this moment with a certain amount of grace. But it really reminds me of the contrast uh, between this and the last stands of the Hardy poem, this let dingy details crudely loom, mm -hmm. this clarity that Gluck seems to be talking about here of yeah. seeing everything as it is and the Hardy poem's total inability to do that, right? Yeah. Um, An invitation for us not to do that. Let right. dingy details crudely loom, like let's not see things for what they are. You asked, is, you know, is it seeing things for what they are? Is, is there something good in it, something bad in it? It's a very, it's, it's straightforward both in its language and the fact that it is not, there's very, very little, if at all, a figure in it. It's just hmm. all straightforward. And so it's, it's as if she's rendering some of these details as close to what they were. Mm -hmm. You know, the waiter cutting leaves of oregano into a mm -hmm. saucer of oil. And the poem, in a, in a way, is tr presenting as simply as possible both what can be seen as negative, you are soon to be dying, mm -hmm. and then also things like the oregano and oil. Yeah, there's a bit of a cat's relationship <laughs> with the world or something. You know, if mm -hmm. the if the voice wants to be this cat that's in the doorway, maybe the cat is the one thinking about, you know, this oregano falling into the saucer. <laughs> I don't mean to I don't mean that in any way to uh, to weaken what you were saying, but but I think there's this way in which the voice here wants to inhabit a different kind of body or yeah. wants to be able to and succeeds in, to a certain extent in, mm -hmm. in seeing things from a different perspective. Well, so many of her poems do that. The one we talk, I talked about with Morgan Frank was uh, Snowdrops from The Wild Iris, and all those poems are spoken by these flowers, and they take on these intense, authoritative, sometimes threatening, sometimes guilty voices. And so they're highly metaphoric. I'm going to transition us to the silliness if you are ready. I, I think I'm as ready as I ever will be. Okay. I, I'm I'm going to quote another email of yours where you said, I doubt you could sound like a fool to, directed to me. So here we go. I'm going to contradict that. <laughs> Before we get to the game, we do have an ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Blind Homer's Escape Room, opening next summer in Ithaca, New York. Fun. Goddess, sing the fun of Achilles at Blind Homer's Escape Room. Do you want some time away from the kids, a few hours or, say, 20 years? Then come on down to Blind Homer's Escape Room. When you enter, our hostess will give you clothing, food, and drink before you float down our wine-dark sea to the first room you have to figure your way out of. You'll have to escape a cave in which you've been trapped by a giant. Never fear, it's just a man in a giant mascot suit. In another room, you'll have to escape while tied to a mast and pop music of the early 2000s blasts on the speakers. Our food court, the Lotus Eaters, has everything that you could want. Though be careful not to consume the wine and cheese that has been drugged by Cersei. We do want to reiterate some issues with the parking lot. Yes, when you return to the car, you will find your mother's suitors surrounding it. But the owner assures people that's simply part of the park experience. And also, if you drive a Honda Odyssey, please don't drive it to the park. It will only cause confusion. So come to Blind Homer's Escape Room, located at a hidden harbor in Ithaca. 
I love it. It's <laughs> excellent. It's great. I, I'm reading The Odyssey in, in one of my classes right now. And in the other one in Greek, we've been reading poetry related to the Cyclops. So oh, wow. it could not have been a more perfect uh, <laughs> PSA. Thank you. This, this somehow will end up on your syllabus and students will be baffled. Uh, <laughs> <It's> great. <laughs> is there anything you would like to say or plug before we go? Just to say thank you so much for having me on. Oh, this thank you so great. much. I love the discussion of Hardy. That's fantastic. I'm so glad to know that poem now. So <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Go read some poems. Go pet some dogs and support striking workers wherever you find them. Bye. <laughs>